face, friend, all you true believers, and welcome to another episode of The Geeky Gentlemen. Today, we're all about the final season of Game of Thrones. The disappointments, the letdowns, and the lingering questions fans are left to ponder now that the series has ended. I'll also be reviewing the newest Disney live-action film, Aladdin. Obviously, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the Game of Thrones finale, or if you haven't seen Aladdin, you have been warned. Also, in the gentleman portions of the podcast, I'm going to be giving you guys some of my favorite swimmer brands to check out this summer, so you're beach ready. Alrighty then, enough said, let's jump right into the episode. It's pretty fair to say that Season 8 of Game of Thrones has been very divisive amongst fans. Most issues that I personally have with the show and the final season, they all stem from the fact that the season was just way too short and they literally rushed every plot point they had going. And there's plenty of things to be upset about in Season 8 of Game of Thrones, so I'm just going to break down the three things that really bugged me in Season 8. First up, Daenerys. Personally, I wish that Danny didn't go all Mad Queen on King's Landing, and if she was going to do it, you know, why didn't you just fly the dragon straight to the Red Keep and burn that down and get Cersei that way? Why did you have to burn down all of King's Landing? But that's logic, not dramatic storytelling. But the entire Mad Queen plot for Danny, even if the writers were setting it up from the very beginning, was just completely rushed in Season 8. I really don't believe her descent into madness because it was just too quick of a turnaround, especially for a character who's already experienced so much loss. I really find it hard to believe that, you know, like, the death of Masande and the death of her other dragon really just sent her off the deep end and she was just like, I'm gonna kill everyone, I'm gonna burn them all down. Also, the romance between her and Jon Snow, I was not even remotely convinced that that was even real. I really felt that they shagged once, and then all of a sudden, oh, I'm so in love with you, and I really love you, and they just kept on saying and saying, and I love my queen, and I love you, Jon Snow, and it was just kind of, no, you don't. You guys barely know each other. So, again, also, if season eight was longer, they could have fleshed that out more, and I probably would have believed it, because at this point now, I really was like, you guys shagged once, right? Like, calm down. It's it's not like it's high school. <laughs> Next up is Jon Snow. Now, I don't know if it's just me, but I find Jon Snow highly irritating, especially in this final season. It seemed like the only phrases he could say were, I don't want him, when he was talked about the Iron Throne and his Targaryen lineage, or you are my queen every time Danny was in the frickin' room. Like I said, I wasn't really sold on the romance between Danny and Jon. So when Jon kills her at the end of the season, to me, that really should have been one of the most emotional deaths of the entire series because Daenerys was my favorite character. I really kind of wanted her to get the Iron Throne. But since, you know, the entire season was rushed, there just wasn't enough time to develop the relationship between Jon and Danny. So I actually really didn't believe he was in love with her. So the fact that in theory, what on paper it's, you know, John kills a woman he loves. I didn't believe that. I didn't believe he killed the woman he loved because I didn't even believe the relationship to begin with. And then the death itself was very undramatic. So I personally felt like the death of Danny at the hands of John was just really ruined one of the endings of one of the best characters of the entire series. Side note, you know, Drogon pops up and he sees that, you know, John has killed his mother. And you know what? I can believe that the dragons are clever. They're smart. They know what's going on. So I get that he burns the Iron Throne because that's symbolic, you know? I I get that. But come on, you are smart enough to know that John just killed your mom. Burn the bastard! I was literally just waiting for Drogon to burn John, only to find out that he can't because John's, you know, Targaryen, so he can't burn just like Danny. And then, you know, the dragon's like, okay, well, you know, like chomp, you know, and just like eat some because stupid John so deserves that. So I just can't believe that the dragon just let him go and just flew off away. Upsetting. And finally, the Night King. Now, 
when I think about this too long, I get so annoyed because the Night King was killed way, 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 way too easily. Now, of course, you know, season eight was rushed. So the writers literally just killed off the Night King in the first big battle of the season. And that left me so pissed. Like seven years of building up the Night King. And this is how he goes out. When I saw the episode for the first time, The Long Night, I was so livid. Not because Arya was the one that killed him. I can believe that. But just the fact that there was so much stupidity in that episode. Like, why are the dragons flying around so much if they want to lure the Night King to Bran? Why aren't they burning the undead? How did so many of the characters survive this battle? Literally, how the fuck is Sam Tarly still alive? And what the hell was Bran doing the entire time he was warging when the Night King was right in front of him? I literally could go on, but seriously, at the end of the episode when the Night King died, I was like, if this is it, I am pissed. But if there's a twist and he's like somehow still alive, I'm going to be so happy. I ended up being pissed. The death of the Night King is just another example of how they rushed this season and they just ruined this entire plot that they had been building. This was something that I felt should have had more screen time, more character deaths, and I really do think that the Army of Undead should have been able to push through Winterfell at least and gotten into more of Westeros before finally being taken out. But I guess that just would have been way too much money for HBO to spend on this show, but still worth it because it was just poorly done. Poor Night King. Poor, poor, poor Night King. Now, the honorable mentions of things that pissed me off in the last season of Game of Thrones go to Bran. Your uselessness in the episode The Long Night is simply staggering. I was really hoping you were going to do something cool and magical at the very end. You didn't. Tyrion, you've always been portrayed as smart and clever, yet this entire season you seem to forget how evil your sister actually is. Arya, you trained for so long to become an assassin, to learn to change your face, yet at one point you seem to forget you had that ability, and right, right when you were about to get Cersei, you decide to get emotional. Lame. And Grey Worm, you were one of the most loyal soldiers to Daenerys. The fact that you let Tyrion live after what he did, and the fact that you let Jon Snow live after he killed Danny, it was just makes me sad. And there just really was not enough of Cersei in season 8. Literally, like, I just wanted to see her drink more wine. I just would have been okay with that. There was just not enough. (laughs) Now, with a show like Game of Thrones, it's literally impossible to wrap up everyone's storyline properly on screen because, you know, the sheer amount of number of characters. But here are some of the biggest unanswered questions that I have after Game of Thrones finished. You know, first, was Cersei even really pregnant? Now, whether she used this pregnancy just to lure Jaime back or she was actually pregnant, we'll never know because, you know, she died. One thing we can be sure about, though, is that baby's gonna be such an alcoholic because she was drinking nonstop. Two, where does Drogon take Daenerys? Now, we see him take his mother and fly away somewhere east, and that's the last we see of him. And then during the small council meeting at the very end, Bran mentions that, you know, like, maybe he can find the dragon. If Bran wargs into that dragon, that seems like a good ability he should have been using, you know, when they were fighting the Night King. So, (laughs) don't do it, Bran, because I'm gonna be pissed. (laughs) Three, is there even a Night's Watch? Jon gets banished back there because he kills Daenerys. But, you know what, the whole point of the Night's Watch was to, you know, watch out for the Night King. You know, now that he's gone, what's even the point of them? Like, they have nothing to do over there. He's just, you know, in the icy north, so I guess that's his punishment. Still not good enough. Fourth, what was the whole deal with the faceless men? Now, I can easily forgive that this was just a plot point to, you know, turn Arya into an assassin. But since they were featured so heavily in the series, and Arya seemed to just forget that she had the ability to change her face... It just seems like this was like a plot point that was just left alone and forgotten, and that just doesn't sit well with me. Fifth up, did Bran always know he would be king? 
So we know Bran is the three-eyed raven, and he has this ability of green sight, so he can see, like, the past, present, and the future to some extent, it seems. And in the final episode, he mentions that that's why he was in King's Landing, because he knew he was going to be nominated as king. But if he knows the future, you think he would have used this ability a bit more, especially at the end. I mean, okay, he gives Arya the dagger, for example, and she uses that dagger to kill the Night King, so he apparently had to have some foresight into that. So that just leaves so many instances that you would think that Bran would have used his insight to help the people of Westeros out. Like, hey there, Danny, don't go too crazy, because if you do, you're going to burn down all of King's Landing, and FYI, if you do that, Jon's going to kill you. I'm just saying, you know, like... Help some people out, Bran. You're the Three-Eyed Raven. Isn't that the point? No, no. And finally, the Valancourt prophecy. Now, this is a prophecy that young Cersei hears, and it discusses, you know, the fate of her children, and it ends up mentioning that, you know, she's going to be choked to death by her younger brother. Well, that didn't happen. Now, it wouldn't be so annoying except the fact that the prophecy seemed to be right about her children. So I was really hoping that, you know, either it was going to be Tyrion, most likely Jamie was going to be the one that was choker because that would have been a more poetic kind of ending. So I was kind of hoping that that was going to happen because I thought that would have been, you know what, very cleverly written. But that didn't happen. Actually, the best thing that would have happened is that you see Jamie choke the life out of her and then that actually turns out to be Arya who was using her face changing skills. But no, no, that just would have been too epic. It would have been just too epic. So it just seemed that they really... Just tossed this prophecy to the wayside only because they had the not clever idea of having Cersei, you know, being killed because, you know, the castle crumbles on top of her. Because apparently that was better than this idea. All in all, I did love Game of Thrones as a series. As time goes on and I reflect on it and I look back, I'll always remember that Game of Thrones was just an amazing series with lively characters, with twists and turns that I didn't see coming. But that just ended with so much disappointment and lost potential. I'm a bit sore about the ending and I just really feel like it was just a wasted opportunity. And for one of the best series that I've ever seen, I really just feel like the ending just kind of ruins so much of it. So much of it. But now let's just toss out all that Game of Thrones disappointment because there's a lot of it. And we're going to go right into Disney's live action remake of Aladdin. So Aladdin just came out in the UK yesterday, and I saw it last night, and it's the remake of the 1992 animated film. Now, the film follows exactly like the cartoon. You know, it's about a street rat Aladdin who discovers a magic lamp, falls in love with a princess, ends up saving the day, and becomes Sultan, and it also gives us that memorable character of the genie. In the live action, Disney kept all the popular songs from the cartoon as well. Now, the live action, of course, takes some deviation for the animated classic and modernizes it for today's audiences, and that's okay. The film, it's nothing too special, and it's, of course, not better than the animated classic. When I watched the film, I just kept on feeling like I really wanted to watch the original, and it makes you wonder why Disney isn't taking more care in these live-action remakes to making sure that they surpass the original. The soundtrack of the original Aladdin is one of the best and will always be epic. Alan Menken's music is just so freakishly amazing, it's ridiculous. And the live-action's rendition of the soundtrack is fairly similar, but fans of the original will definitely be able to notice the difference. The beginning of the film with the genie, who is now in human form, and he's reminiscing about his adventures with Aladdin, he starts singing Arabian Nights, and that was a little bit rough for me. It just, it seemed, I don't know, it just didn't hit off, you know, like as a home run. And then, you know, Aladdin's song, One Jump, also seemed a little deflated when compared to the original. I did like Men as Aladdin, and I just found his singing just leaving me wanting more. It just, it wasn't the bestest, 
And also the One Jump reprise in the cartoon is so emotional and it's so pretty. And his rendition just was also just seemed to lack any emotion. It just just seemed odd. I'm not the biggest fan of Will Smith, so I wasn't too excited that he was going to be the genie. And, you know, there's just really no way that you can beat Robin Williams. But as the film went on and I just saw more of, you know, Will Smith as a genie, you know, I started to kind of see the point and see why he was cast. So, you know, he grew on me. The saving grace for the soundtrack and the film for me in general is the song Speechless, which is sung by Naomi Scott, who plays Jasmine. Now, Speechless is such an incredible song. I'm still listening to it on repeat. Now, I'm not sure why it's in the film twice, because it seemed really odd, because usually when a song is in a film twice, you know, it's because, you know, you have the song, then you have, like, the small, like, reprise, you know, like, towards, like, the third act or something like that. But this time around, it was more, like, reprise, and then she had the entire song. It just didn't fit. It was just, I felt like, kind of like a weird idea to like have in a film but the song itself is really really pretty definitely have to listen to it and i really would love to hear the original singing voice of jasmine leia salonga sing it so leia salonga go sing speechless in general i liked all the actors who played the key roles but for me i would have to say naomi scott as jasmine is the clear star of the film live action did a good job in making jasmine much more of just a princess that needed to be saving they actually did a good job of making jasmine much more well-rounded character and making her a heroine in her own right. The thing I really loved about the live action that they did was instead of making, you know, Aladdin become Sultan because he marries Jasmine, they actually went and chose to make Jasmine Sultan, even though when she marries Aladdin, he doesn't become Sultan. Like, she is Sultan. So I think that was a very good, yay, female empowerment. Guy Ritchie was the director of the live action. And one thing that I completely hated in this film, I just did not like it at all, is the editing during the dance sequences in the film. The only way I can describe it is, it's kind of like a sped up version of the dancing movement, and it just comes off very jarring and kind of silly on screen. You know, like, I first noticed it in Aladdin's One Jump, and then it just continues during every dance sequence, and it just looks so cartoonish. It's just so silly. It just really kind of pulls you out of the moment, and I just simply didn't care for it. It was just very, very bad editing. Now, I know you can't compare the live action to the original because there's no way it's going to beat the original usually, but the live action remake of Aladdin is nothing special. It kind of falls short on mostly everything. The only thing that the film does better than the original is making Jasmine more of a hero in her own right and, you know, the additional song, Speechless. If I had to rank Aladdin... Amongst the current roster of all the live-action films Disney's making, it would go like this. Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Maleficent, Dumbo, and The Jungle Book. With really only Cinderella being the one live-action film that I think is better than the original. All the other ones, I'm just kind of like, I mean, if I had to see it, it would be like, okay, but I really wouldn't go out of my way to choose to see them. So if you see Aladdin, you'll still be entertained. It's very Disney-esque, but as a big Disney fan, it still doesn't beat the original for me. And definitely download the song Speechless by Naomi Scott, because that song is so pretty, you're going to love it. And with that said, we're going to jump right into the gentleman portion of the podcast. So summer's almost here, and besides getting your body beach ready, you got to have your swimwear sorted. Lord knows I love the beach, and if you follow me on Instagram, at Drifting Decal, you can definitely see that I'm always at the beach. I'm there a lot. 
So I decided that I'm going to give you guys three of my favorite swimwear brands that I love to wear when I hit the beach. First up is Bordies. Now, if you like the look of board shorts and you want something that's just more laid back and beach casual, then Bordies is definitely for you. These are the shorts that you would expect most men to wear. They're not too attention grabbing, not too daring. They're just very, you know, like laid back. These would be the ones that I would wear when I know I'm going to be super active on the beach, like playing volleyball or snorkeling. I would go for Bordies if I just knew I was going to be moving around a lot. Now, they have a good mix of solid colors, simple designs, but they're still kind of like a sense of like whimsy and like carefree. So that is why I would choose Bordies because, you know, you just want to be chill and laid back or, you know, like just, you know, smacking that volleyball. Choose Bordies. Second would be Park and Ronin. Now, Park and Ronin for me is a step up in terms of styling when it comes to swimwear. Where Bordies is much more laid back and casual, Park and Ronin offers more style, it's more fitted, and, you know, it's stylistically more trendy. To me, this is a swimwear that I would wear when I want to, like, make a good impression at a beach club or pool parties. And, you know, I just want people to be looking at me and being like, oh, look at this guy. He has awesome swimwear. Park and Ronin. Their trunks are cut and designed more refined. They have more of a luxury look. And, you know, it definitely looks like, you know, like you spent money on this swimwear. They have a range of styles, like short or long trunks. They even have briefs. This is the brand that you want to wear when you want to turn heads, but still look your best at summer events. My final pick would be Charlie by Matthew Zink. Charlie by MZ for me is a brand that I would go to if I wanted to wear swimwear that's super on trend, but I'm also feeling a bit more brave in terms of how much skin I'm going to be showing. If you're looking for like a swim brief and like epic designs that range from like form fitting to literally not leaving much to the imagination, then Charlie by MZ is for you. These are my go-to when I know I'm just going to be at the pool and I'm just going to get as tan as possible. Like I literally want to get every inch of my skin tan. And also when I kind of want people to be checking me out, I would wear a Charlie's. <laughs> Charlie by MZ features a lot of ranges in terms of briefs. Now they have ones that are like the side waistband is much more thicker or they have ones that are much, much, much more thinner, kind of on the verge of like, kind of like a bikini bikini. They also have like short swim shorts that are still very nice and, you know, very much attention to detail. This is my go-to brand when you definitely want to make a good impression and have all eyes on you while maybe being a little bit more risque about it in comparison to, you know, like a Park and Ronin. Alrighty, guys, there you have three of my favorite swimwear brands, Bordies, Park and Ronin, and Charlie by MZ. So make sure to check them out, get yourself ready for the pool, get yourself ready for the beach, get yourself ready for summer. And I just really want to say thank you again for listening to another episode of The Geeky Gentleman. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the podcast. I'd really appreciate it. And if you guys have any topics you'd like me to discuss on the podcast, shoot me a DM on Instagram. Again, I'm at Jifting Decal. And with that said, we are at the end of this episode. I'm your host, David Calderon, and I will talk to you later. Bye.